Okay, are we ready? All right. So next Monday, we are concluding the semester of Bible study. I can't believe that already. It's here. Um, and we're going to conclude it with the book. It's a whole entire book. We're going to do one book in one day. Um, <laughs> the letter to Philemon. But for this week, we are going to finish up Paul's letter to Timothy, first letter to Timothy. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for who you are. You are good. You are faithful. Thank you for your word. And I thank you that your spirit is at work in us through your word. Father, I pray for these next few moments that you would fill us with your word and with your spirit. I pray that um, you would continue to do the good work that you are already doing in each one of our lives. And um, I thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to start with verse 11 to keep things in context. And I'm going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things, these, this final command to Timothy, to the man of God, to flee and pursue and then fight and take hold of 
These are all action words, things he is supposed to do. And these words really are words that summarize his entire letter, are they not? They're a summary of everything he's been saying throughout the whole letter to Timothy, both personally and publicly. Sometimes I struggle, as I've, as especially in this semester, as I've um, studied and prepared to teach each week, it's been a struggle for me at times to remember that these words were written specifically to Timothy. They're specifically for him. And you know how we start every semester of Bible study. It's like context, context, context. Context is everything. These letters are written specifically by a person to a person. And we need to remember that. And yet at the same time, as I've studied through this, this small little letter, it has felt very much as if it's been the Spirit of God speaking specifically to me, to us today. These words, these final commands are not just to Timothy and not just to the church that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus all those years ago. But these final words, these closing words to this letter are for us. They're for us today, coming to us by God himself. They're for the church today in our context these final words to flee these things, the things that result from false teaching, to pursue what is godliness, are words for the church today, for us today. These words that say to fight and to take hold are words for you and for me today and for our church to stand in the context that we are in today. Flee and pursue. Fight the good fight of the faith. The word fight, the Greek word for fight that is translated fight, is where we get the English word to agonize. If that doesn't describe for us the intensity of what we're in, I don't know what does. There is a fight to be fought. And Paul tells us that it's a good fight. But there is a fight. The Christian life is not a life of comfort and ease. It is not a life of just sailing on through in order to walk the Christian walk, in order to stand in the current cultural context. There is a fight, both personally, that we each individually have to do, and corporately, together as the church. We are called to fight. It is a good fight. The fight is a spiritual fight because it's a fight for the faith, for the doctrines, for what we believe in, for what we confess, for what is true. This is a fight that has a twofold attack that is coming against us individually and corporately. There is an attack that comes from without that we're fighting against the culture. 
for Paul and for Timothy and for that original church in Ephesus. They had a specific cultural context with which they were standing for truth and fighting against the idolatry of their day. But we too, our culture is fighting against us personally and the church, the belief systems that are prevalent in our day. The idolatry that is prevalent in our day. Don't think because for the most part we don't see people bowing down to idols in the streets like we would often hear and read about in the scriptures. Don't think that there is not idolatry in our day today. We live with a plethora of gods that is being pushed on the church in our day and pushed on us. There, us. there is governmental pressure that we experience in our day just as they did in their day to conform to the idols of the day. The biggest idolatry that we have going on in our culture today is sexual idolatry. And we are being pressured to conform to this idol. And we have to fight to stand firm against all of this pressure that is coming at us. And the pressure is coming from without, but it's also coming from within the church because the church itself, people within the church, broadly speaking, are beginning to compromise to the idols of the day. And so we now have pressure that comes from within the church to bow the knee, to compromise, to join in the compromise. There's false teaching, there's false doctrine that is prevalent. It was then, and it's striking to me that it was in the scriptures it was prevalent already. I mean, Jesus had barely left and gone into heaven and ascended on his throne. And already it began to seep into the church. Already the scriptures, the word of God, was being distorted and twisted in that day. And how much more so is this true for today? Did not the Holy Spirit expressly say that in the later times, people would be led astray? because of false doctrines. The battle that we are waging is the battle of words. It's the battle for truth. And it's the battle that has been fought since the Garden of Eden, when Satan crept in to paradise, into that perfect relationship, and began to whisper false knowledge into the ears and hearts of the first man and woman. And instead of guarding the good deposit that they had been entrusted with, they confessed what was false and rejected what was true. The battle has been waged since that moment in time, and it's the same battle that we're fighting today. The battle for the truth. That's the only weapon that we have to fight in this war 
is the truth. The truth of God's word, the truth that we read in God's word. That is what Paul has been telling Timothy throughout this entire letter. Fight what is false with what is true. He had said in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, says, Until I come, and here again, like we heard a couple weeks ago, the Holy Spirit of God saying these words to us, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your progress and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is how we fight the good fight of the faith, by immersing ourselves in truth, not allowing ourselves to be distracted by what is false, not immersing ourselves in what is false, but what is true, what we find in the full revelation from Genesis to the end of the book, Revelation, everything we have in the word of God is truth. And it is the means by which we are called to fight this good fight of the faith. It is the way in which Jesus, our Lord and Savior, fought the good fight of the faith. Remember, reflect with me on how he fought Satan in the wilderness. Every word that came out of his mouth was scripture. Satan brought scripture to him with distortion and Jesus fought back with the word of God. And we fight in the same way our Lord fought, with God's word, with the truth of God's word, rightly divided. We are called to fight the good fight of the faith until Jesus comes back, both individually, and this is what the church is being called to do, to stand in the, in the midst of our current cultural context, collectively, the church is being called to be devoted to the word of God, to fight against culture with God's word. May it be so in each one of our churches. Paul continues on and he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of this eternal life. Fully appropriate, take exclusive possession of the eternal life to which you are called. What is this eternal life? Let's talk about that for a second. I think sometimes we see the words eternal life and we think of something that's far off, something removed, something otherworldly, away far in the future. After we die, But I believe that taking hold of the eternal life to which we are called begins in the here and now. It's not just for then, it's for here and now. It's tangible. It has to do with the quality of life that we experience now. Not just in the life that is to come, but it includes the life that it 
is to come. Eternal life begins the moment that you are saved, the moment that you are born again. In Jesus' pastoral prayer in John 17, he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorif- that may, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So it's the Son who gives life. And this is eternal life, Jesus goes on and expresses what it is, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they may know you. It's in knowing God. I mean, knowing him intimately, not as if he's somehow removed from us. It's in knowing him and Jesus that we can begin to experience eternal life regardless of how life on earth feels and seems. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The psalmist writes, in your presence, in the presence of God, is fullness of joy. Not happiness, joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even in the midst of life's trials and sorrows and struggles, even in the midst of all that we experience on a daily basis, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our fight for the faith, we experience life. Life because we know him. We know him. Our relationship that was severed in the Garden of Eden has been restored through Jesus Christ, the giver of life. Through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension, all that he is has brought us back into fellowship with the one true God. And that is where life is found. And Paul and the Spirit of God through Paul is telling us, take hold of that. You have it. It's yours. Fully appropriate that. Live into that eternal life. Notice, it's to which you are called. This eternal life is something that we have been called to. Jesus said that in John 17. You have given me, Father, authority to give eternal life to the ones that you've given to me. We have been called by God himself to this eternal life. God is the one who calls people. That is spectacular truth. That we would be walking around this earth, minding our own business, doing our own thing, living our own way for our own self, seeking happiness, seeking pleasure, seeking comfort in our own ways, doing what we do, doing what the world tells us to do. And suddenly out of the blue, God calls us. He calls us out of the darkness, we're told, out of the darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. 
the light of truth, the light that brings life. He calls us when we weren't even looking for us, rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. This is what we've been called to. And he's asking us, he's telling us, take hold of this that you were called to and that you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This good confession that he's talking about is the confession that we make upon our salvation. This is the confession that for thousands of years every believer is making, and it's a public confession of faith. It started way back at the beginning of the church age when they would stand before their, the, the assembly, whoever was there. And they would be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what would they do? They would make a confession. And what were they confessing? Well, we learn a lot about that confession in other parts of Scripture, in Romans 10, 9 through 10. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So God is the one who saves our hearts. He puts his spirit within us. He gives us this new heart. And we have this newfound faith that is a gift from God, a new heart that trusts in him, that believes in him, as imperfectly as we do. But nobody can see the heart, right? Nobody but God can see the heart. And so with our mouth, we confess what God has done in our hearts. What do we confess? We confess who Jesus is. The root, the very center of our confession is the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we believe that he is who he said he is. We confess that, be- that we believe the word of God and what the word of God testifies to who Jesus is and what he came to do, that he was buried, that he was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, and that God raised him again from the dead, and that in Jesus Christ we have been given eternal life. This is the good confession that Timothy made at his own baptism. This would have probably been the same good confession that he would have made at his ordination when he was called to pastor and to be a minister. And this is the good confession that the church collectively makes. We saw that in chapter 3 when we read the words, great indeed we confess that this is the church's confession, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, the Lord Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on, on in the world, and taken up into glory. The very good confession that we make is about Jesus. That is our confession It's Jesus. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And the eternal life that we are confessing, we have in Jesus Christ. What we have been given in Jesus is life. 
eternal life. And we are being called through the word of God to live this life fully in this present age. To take full possession of the life that you have in Christ. Fight for it. Fight for it. And we're being called also to live this life with integrity in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 13 through 14. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display, he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. In the presence of God. There's a Latin phrase. It's, said, it's called Coram Deo, which basically is literally translated to do something in the presence of God before the face of God. So the charge is for you, for the church, individually and together, to live in this present age, this present time, regardless of who we are, regardless of when in history we have lived, the charge is the same to live in this present age before the presence of God. That means that we live before his face. His face is toward us. Everything we do, we do before the presence of God. And it's not just God generally. He gets pretty specific about who this God is that we are living before. He says he's the God who gives life to all things. Reminding us of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is God, the God of the Bible, who gives life to all things. I mean, think about the context that Timothy and the church are in, in Ephesus. The center of idolatry in the ancient world was in Ephesus. They were saturated with dead Gods and everybody was pursuing these dead gods for life. But it is this God, the one we read about in Scripture, this is the only God, and this is where life is found. So the God that we are living in this present age before is the God who has given life, who's given everything life, and he's given us eternal life. 
He gives life to all things. And he continues on to say, and of Christ Jesus. And we know because scriptures testify to this that Christ Jesus is also God. So the God of the Bible is very specific. He's not this general God that we would hear about in our current cultural context. People are okay with God in general because they can replace and put into that name whatever they want him to be. And so we can be generally talking about God in a room full of pagans and everybody's going to be okay. But the second we name the name of Jesus, suddenly the tables turn because that makes God very specific. That's talking about the Christian God, the God of the Bible. But that's the only God that exists. This is the God who's given us life. The God of the Bible any other God that is not the God of the scriptures is a dead God. And this Christ Jesus, we live before him, who also gave a good confession, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So what is the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate? You remember the story, in it's specifically in John in John's account of the crucifixion, we get a greater detail of what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate. In the other three Gospels, they say the exact same thing. Pontius Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you say that I am, with this nebulous response. But in John, we get details of what this testimony said. We get details of his good confession. We learn in his confession... Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus answers to the question, are you the king of the Jews? He says, yeah, I am. I am the king. I'm the king of a kingdom, but this kingdom is not of this world. He went on to say to, to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus' good confession is similar but not similar to our good confession. But Jesus' good confession is similar to ours because he's making a confession about himself, who he is. He stands before Pilate on trial and he says, I am the king of the kingdom. And he goes, I came to bear witness to the truth. And how did he bear witness to the truth? He was the truth. He is the truth. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the very truth. The truth stood in the presence of Pilate, confessing himself publicly in front of hostile witnesses. And Pilate, blinded to the truth, says, what is truth? He's looking him in the eyes. And he couldn't see what was standing right before him. Jesus' good confession is the truth. 
that he is the truth, that he came to make known the truth about who God is, the Father. John 17, 25, Jesus says these words, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know that, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus is making known the truth about who God is. He's making known the truth about the kingdom. Matthew 4.23 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, which is himself. Jesus is God. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And this is the confession of Jesus that we base our own confession on. This is the God we confess. This is the God whom we are being called to live before, live in his presence before. This is the God who is coming again. We know that he's coming again because he came the first time after thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years that people waited for this Messiah to come. He came. So as we wait in this present age, living before the presence of God, we do so knowing that he will appear again. He is coming. It says in verse 15, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign. He is going to be displayed in a way that we will be able to physically see him. We will be able to see the blessed one. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed one in whom we have all blessings. He will be displayed for us in a way that we will be able to see. He who is blessed and only sovereign. There is no other king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is ruling and reigning even now in the midst of what feels very chaotic. He is the only sovereign. He who alone has immortality, has no beginning and no end. He is forever, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be glory and honor, to honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I mean, Paul breaks out in worship as he thinks about the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will be made visible to us at just the right time. And with that vision in mind... We live in the presence of God. We live before his face, keeping the commandment. It says in verse 14, unstained and free from reproach until that day appears. We live in this present age, waiting for the blessed appearing of our Lord, keeping the word of God, the full revelation of God, unstained, pure, 
We walk in submission to his word. We preach it, teach it, read it, understand it, rightly dividing it. To leave it unstained is to not take from it, to not distort it, to not twist it, to not put our cultural context on it, but to purely excavate what God's heart is saying through his word, to purely read it, to rightly divide the word of truth. We are to keep it unstained individually in our own personal lives as we study, as we read. But corporately, this is the call of the church to hold fast to the word of God purely as it's been given to us, to receive it, to humbly submit to it, and then also free from reproach. This is about our lives as believers, how we're living in the here and now under in the presence of God. Are we living consistently with the word that we are proclaiming. Remember 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, I have written to you that you might know how you ought to behave in the household of God. We're being called to live in a way so that the word of God, the commandment of God, is without reproach. It's called living a life consistent with the word that is preached. Remember what Paul had said earlier? He said it several times throughout the the letter. Widows, live fully into God's design for you so that you give the adversary no reason for slander. How about to Timothy? Command and teach these things so that they, your congregation, may be without reproach. Bond servants, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The call for us is to hold the commandment, the word of God, pure in this present age and to live consistently with the word of God. This is what it means to live in the presence of God, to live in Coram Deo. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. He is omnipresent, and there is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. We live today, though, keeping in mind who God is, the good confession that we made, the good confession that Jesus made, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be honor and eternal glory. What an incredible privilege it is that we would know this God, that we have been called to this eternal life, that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into his kingdom. So live in light of who he is in this present age. And so Paul brings us back to the present age with his next command, with instructions for how The rich are called to live in this present time. Now, we've seen how the widows were called to live. We were were taught how men are called to live and women are called to live. We've seen how the elders and deacons are called to live and bond servants. And now, the rich. How are the rich to live in this present age? Verse 17, as for the rich, and 
There's no exceptions to the call of God on an individual's life. We could never say that's for everybody else. This is for everybody else. Sometimes in our culture, that's kind of how it works, right? The rules apply for thee, not for me. We've, saw, we've seen that in our own cultural context. The rich get off. They don't have to follow the same rules we have to follow. But in the kingdom of God, there is no partiality. What applies for the poor applies for the rich. It's all the same. There is no exceptions to the rules. As for the rich in this present age, living before the face of God, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Charge them not to be haughty. Charge them to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They're to be humble. The rich, the wealthy, are called to be humble, to remember from where they get their wealth. From where they get all that they have nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Everything that we have the ability to grab a hold of in this world is uncertain. There is nothing that is certain. And that leaves us feeling a lot unsettled, doesn't it? I think that we feel that more and more as our world begins to give evidence of the uncertainty that is around us, as our governments begin to crumble, as the economic system seems very shaky, as all of these things begin to happen, I think our own personal anxiety can increase because somewhere inside of us, we're trying to hold on to the uncertainty that life has to offer for us, right? But everything in this life is going to fail, that we can hold on to nothing as certain. The very breath that we have in our bodies, the amount of days that we have to live, is uncertain. We have no control over anything, and yet we actively seek to try to control and hold on to what is unable to hold on to. It's like trying to grasp for clouds. But instead, we do have something to hold on to that is certain. We have God, but on God, it says. So instead of holding on to the uncertainty of riches, hold on to God. He is the only thing that is certain, that is solid. He is the rock. He is the eternal one. He is unshakable. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is holding together this universe without even hardly having to lift a finger. And look what it says about God in there, who richly provides us with everything 
to enjoy. Don't miss that part. God is the blessed God who overflows his blessing on his called ones, his people. And he is overflowing, richly providing us with everything we need so that we have joy, so that we can enjoy him. And that phrase makes me think again of the Garden of Eden. When God planted this garden and he filled it with everything good in the garden for them, including himself, including his own presence. It was called the Garden of Pleasure. That's what Eden is translated to, pleasure. It was filled. It was filled with everything good for Adam and Eve to enjoy. This is who God is. Consistently, throughout Scripture, we are told that he is the God who overflows onto his people with goodness and with blessing. But over and over again, the lie that comes at us is this. Did God actually say, God is withholding from you, He's withholding good from you. And God is a liar. You will not surely die. Those three phrases are the lie that you will hear in every false teaching. Did God really say, God's word is not for your good? You will not surely die. And you know what happens? He says it in the last phrase. I'm I'm jumping way ahead of myself. But he says, to preserve, to preserve, he tells them to um, guard the good deposit entrusted you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's how it started, right? And it's been the battle all the way through is the battle for truth. Is God good? Is he truthful? Is he withholding good from you? The word of God tells us he is good. He is richly providing us with everything, not just everything we need, but everything we need to enjoy. His boundaries fall for us in pleasant places. Do we believe that? He charges the rich, but put your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And out of that, they live. Out of that, 18 happens. Out of that, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. They are living in a good way, following the goodness of God, doing rich in their good works out of the abundant riches that God has poured out on them. 
generous and ready to share. All of this is flowing out of the generosity and goodness of our God. We don't live for good works. We don't live for God to bless us in this way. We live out of that goodness, out of his blessing, and are generous out of that. And it says that they're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation. Does that not echo the words of Jesus? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They are storing up treasure as they pour out their lives generously for others for the future, this future that is sure and secure in the presence of God. It says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. We started out in verse 12 with the, with the command to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and to which you confess. And now at the end of this section, we are now told that the rich, by living generous lives out of the abundance of what God has given to them, are taking hold of what is truly life. And what do we find sandwiched between these two commands? The giver of life. God. God himself is the giver of life. The Lord Jesus is the giver of life. In between these two charges, we have the blessed God. Take hold of that which is truly life is to take hold of God himself, to cling to him, to cling to him. I want you to picture in your mind with me Genesis and Jacob when you think about what it means to take hold Jacob, remember the story coming back to his family? And he's by himself in the dark, and a man comes and attacks him, and they begin this all-night wrestling match, and he's holding fast to this man. I don't know what point he realized in the middle of this wrestling match that this was not an ordinary man, that he was wrestling with God himself. I'm not sure when that happened, but at some point he did because he just clung to him. This is the picture I want you to have in your mind. Cling. Cling to him. Waiting for that blessed day when you will see his face. When daylight comes. But if you cling to him, you will never be the same. Jacob walked away marked. Clinging from, to him will mark you. And you will never be the same. This is what we're being called to. And how we're called to live in this present age. Holding fast, taking hold of that which for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Because as we cling to him, he's clinging to us. 
And he's really the one that's holding us, keeping us from falling. The faith that we are fighting for, the word of God, is testifying from beginning to end that this God is the same God that we see in this passage of scripture that is revealed through all of scripture. He is good, he is faithful, and he is holding us fast. O Timothy, verse 20 says, guard this. Guard this good deposit that's been entrusted to you. This is a treasure. The word that testifies to this God, this is a treasure. Guard it with your life. Fight for it with your life. Avoid, have nothing to do with the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid, don't listen to, turn it off, turn away from, don't study it to try to understand it. Just ignore the voices of what is falsely called knowledge. For by it, look at the fruit. Professing it, people have swerved from the truth. And then Paul closes with the final words in his letter to Timothy. Grace be with you. That word you is plural. It's plural, and we're reminded again that this letter is a personal letter, but it wasn't private. It was for Timothy. It was for his congregation. It was for the churches through the church through the ages, and it's for you and for me. Grace be with you. From beginning to end of the Christian life, grace is essential. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is essential for your salvation, and grace is essential for all who make the good confession to take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Grace is essential to fight the good fight of the faith, keeping the commandment unstained and free from reproach, storing up treasure in heaven, and guarding the good deposit from beginning to end. Grace is essential, but ultimately grace is not a thing that we receive. Ultimately, grace is a person. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. For the grace of God has appeared, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace is a person, and that person is Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended to his throne, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Grace be with you. Grace is with you, even to the end of this present age. Cling to grace. Let's pray.
Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the eternal life to which we've been called. Thank you for entrusting us with the good deposit, with your word, for giving all that we need for life and godliness. And thank you for Jesus. I pray that we would cling to him and that we would walk and live in this present age, holding fast to all that you've called us to do and to be. In Jesus' name, amen.